What are they doing here? I think that they're going to start building dirty bombs in our cities, uh, and they're lying in wait for when the inevitable clash, direct clash between Iran and the United States erupts, which I think is coming soon. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, Canada is the number one per capita importer of human beings in the world. The United States is second. And leading into the Christmas season, uh, with the sort of renewal of hostilities over in Gaza, um, we had a surprising spike in things like anti-Semitism, which we had not seen in Canada or been aware of for a very long time. And this is also true of the United States. And as, you, as our viewers know, it's, uh, it's been very, very difficult to get reliable information and news about what's really going on there. And so we thought we'd have on our good friend, uh, Brandon Weikert, who is an expert in this area, a geopolitical analyst, who's written a fascinating book about Iran and about the Middle East. So he's very knowledgeable in this space. We're very, very pleased and honored to have him back on the program. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Thank you again for having me. It's a pleasure to be back here with my friends up, uh, up north of us. Yes. Uh, you know, re we really want to pick your brain about what's happening over there. We know you have deep insight about what's going on with the Houthis and Hamas and Iran and the connections there, and also how that's linked to the way things are being handled uh, in the White House, uh, which was recently attacked by some pro-Palestinian protesters. Right. Yes. Looked like an insurrection uh, to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So before we, uh, we introduce you properly, we're going to go to our framing aphorisms uh, uh, briefly. Uh, the first one is from the late Reverend uh, Billy Grams, who, who uh, we know is very quotable. Uh, he once said that racial prejudice, anti-Semitism, or hatred of anyone with different beliefs has no place in the human mind or heart. I hope that we, I used to think we could all agree on that. Um, mm -hmm. Secondly, from uh, the late uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who was recently honored in the United States with an annual uh, holiday, uh, he wrote, make no mistake about those who call themselves anti-Zionist. Uh, they're also anti-Semitic. And finally, from uh, uh, an American commentator named Thomas Friedman, who said that criticizing Israel is not anti-Semitic and saying so is vile, but singling out Israel for opprobrium and international sanction out of all proportion to any other party in the Middle East is anti-Semitic and not saying so is dishonest. Uh, so who do we have on the show today? Well, Brandon Weikert, uh, he is a geopolitical analyst who manages the Weikert Report World News Done Right, and lives by Herman Kahn's credo, I'm Against Fashionable Thinking. Uh, he's the author of the 2020 book, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Also, a couple of other books that we're going to talk about today, including Biohack, China's Race to Control Life. Uh, but more importantly, what we want to talk with about him today is a very fascinating book that he's written called Shadow War. Uh, Brandon has done a lot of research and has taken a real deep dive into the relationship between Iran, the state of Iran, the United States, and also uh, the growing unrest and uh, geopolitical instability in that part of the world. And so, uh, Brandon, thanks again for coming on the program. I want to start with a bit of a funny uh, that you'll appreciate. Uh, there's a recent story, the publication, that, uh, that uh, Donald Trump is actually more popular 
among Canadians than Justin Trudeau. Uh, so, so no, no, to be fair, Justin Trudeau is about as popular in Canada right now as, uh, you know, herpes or gonorrhea. He's the least popular <laughs> prime minister ever. Uh, but why do you think, why do you think Donald Trump is so, is so popular in Canada? I know you follow the Canadian, uh, politics pretty closely. Yeah. What do you, well, what, I do you think... have some ideas about that? Yeah, well, I think actually, contrary to how he's presented in American media, um, Donald Trump's actually not a hardline right wing guy. Donald Trump is a New York former liberal who's somewhat moderate on, I mean, we've seen in the campaign, he's somewhat moderate on uh, gay marriage. He's somewhat moderate on, you know, even abortion while he supports, you know, the the Supreme Court's decision to, to end abortion. He's also worried about what it will do to women. These are not hardline conservative stances. My read on Canada is that it's always been sort of an even moderate country. Um, right. And I think compared to Justin Trudeau, who's a basically a Marxist, um, you know, I think Canadians are rightly looking down south saying, you know, why can't we get that? I mean, mm. yeah, his mean tweets may be a little too harsh for some Canadians, but uh, ultimately, uh, America had a strong um, economy under him, which of course benefited Canada. Um, yes. Donald Trump helped reinvigorate the not only Canadian-American uh, trade relationship, but also the Mexican-American trade relationship with the USMCA, um, which replaced NAFTA. Um, so there's a lot of not only uh, sort of ancillary things to like about Trump, but there's also a lot of tangible benefits that Canada directly had. And also the United States military, which of course Canada is fused through NORAD uh, with, the, with the United States defensive apparatus, uh, we were the strongest we've been in decades under Trump. Mm -hmm. And of course, Biden has spent the last three years gutting it. And the, when I was out at uh, one of our military bases in uh, Washington state, um, which hosts a Canadian contingent, one of the commanders of the Canadian contingent told me that he feels that as America's military is being gutted by Biden, so is Canadian, Canada's military being gutted by Trudeau. And so there's a lot of things to like about Trump. And I think that any reasonable person while they may not like some of his sort of braggadocious behavior, I call him the Mad King, um, you know, it's better than Mr. Magoo, which is what we're getting in Joe <laughs> Biden, and certainly better than the wannabe Castro that is uh, trusted Trudeau. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we, have a, we have about as many reasonable people in, in our federal government in, uh, in Ottawa uh, as you have in, in, in the Biden administration. Unfortunately, you know, the Canadian <laughs> government they were so worried, Brandon, about uh, the ascendancy of Trump, you know, because, of course, his success in Iowa and now New Hampshire. And, of course, everybody's beginning to see the writing on the wall that Mr. Trump is going to be the GOP candidate. Uh, they actually had meetings to, to, mm -hmm. to decide, you know, how are we going to deal with Mr. Trump? Now, on the other side of that, just to segue into the Middle East, I heard you say in a recent interview that you see Donald Trump as probably the best president uh, in terms of Middle East for, for the United States and for the West since the 1950s. So yeah. let, let's maybe segue in there. Maybe you could explain why you say that. Yeah. Well, um, and uh, interestingly, there are elements in the Middle East that miss Donald Trump for this very reason, in the same way that Canadians are, you know, surprisingly friendly to Trump or, or amenable to him. Uh, it's because Trump was very clear when it came to foreign policy, which is sort of ironic, because if you remember 2016, they were piling on him because he was a foreign policy naif. He didn't have any mm -hmm. professional background, but I actually argue that's what gave him sort of an advantage because he wasn't locked into some of these preconceived paradigms 
that have dominated the foreign policy discourse, particularly on the Middle East, uh, over the last 60 years. And so Donald Trump came in and he said, look, the Iran deal is the worst deal I've ever seen in my life. And I think he's probably right. It was one of the worst deals this country ever made. It was the equivalent of what Neville Chamberlain did with uh, Hitler, only it was with nukes. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, Trump said at the same time, uh, you know, we've got to kill these Islamist terror groups in the Sunni world. But at the same time, we don't want to replicate the George W. Bush uh, agenda of basically invading five or six countries at a time in the Middle East. We can't afford it and it doesn't work. So he said there's got to be a middle ground. There's got to be some way America can preserve its interests and protect itself in the region without abandoning it to its enemies. And that was the formulation behind the Abraham Accords, which was bringing Israel and right. the Sunni Arab states, no notably the Saudis, uh, together into sort of an anti-Iran coalition, a kind of a quasi-NATO of the Middle East um, that would contain and deter Iranian aggression. And it would allow for us to take a step back and to return back to the way we were in the Middle East pre-Desert Storm, which was as an offshore balancer. We were the force of last resort, okay? Let right. the region handle its, it will, we'll support them, but let the region handle the day-to-day because -day they understand it better than we do. And that allows us to shift resources around and focus on other threats like notably China. And so that was sort of Trump's third way approach, not the Obama appeasement, not the George W. Bush invade the whole region and, and get mired there for a century. Um, and, you know, and that that was what we used to do when Harry Truman and Eisenhower were in office. That was sort of right. the traditional American role. And that's what we were returning to under Trump. And under Biden, it's been totally reversed. And we now see the fruits of that failed policy. Mm hmm. Now, you wrote a book uh, recently called The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. I remember we talked about this book the last time you we were on here. And actually, um, although it was recently released, you wrote it a, a little while ago. And so yeah. you become a bit of a prophet here. You, you accurately predicted in your book some of the things that, are, that we're seeing right now, including the rise of anti-Semitism, uh, which, I, which I, like many people, I find very shocking and frankly vile. Um, but you talk about in the book and also in some of your public discourse about the three H's, uh, yeah. that, about what's going on in there. And this seems to be a very useful way to frame this discussion. Mm -hmm. Could you explain about what those three H's are? Yeah. And so this was the product of a conversation with a dear friend of mine who has a radio show in Phoenix called Seth Liebson. But we were talking about this and I said, when you think about it, it's the three H's, the Houthis, Hezbollah and Hamas, the three H's. Those right. are uh, the, the the byproducts of Iranian uh, of Iranian terrorism that they are all supported by Iran. They are not separate entities as they like to pretend to be. They are not sort of you know uh, national liberation movements as they claim to be. They've all been co-opted by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is the militant wing of the Iranian uh, Islamic regime. Uh, and so, what I said in the book, and I track this, is beginning especially in December 2016. There was a very famous meeting that was headed by the late General Qasim Soleimani of the IRGC, who Trump assassinated beautifully uh, in, in 2019. Um, but Soleimani headed a meeting. It was a terrorist convention, for lack of a better word, in which brought together um, Hezbollah and Hamas and also Fatah in, from the Palestinian territories. Uh, and they basically agreed to pull all the resources together, set aside whatever differences existed, and to pull the resources together to initiate an Iranian-led uh, or an Iranian-orchestrated 
third intifada, what they said would be the final intifada against Israel. And the Houthis, while they weren't in that conference, the Houthis, we know, are directly trained, funded, and in some cases led by the IRGC. And so these three H's are sort of the steel claws of Iran that are extended across the region, and they're slashing hard. Um, the a Saudi official once said uh, to me that, um, that Iran is a paper tiger with steel claws. And uh, and I and I add on in the book that those steel claws are the three H's: Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis. And if you want to throw in Fatah as well, uh, you can. But then that sort of kills the paradigm with the H's. But that is exactly uh, what we're seeing today. So what happened in, with Hamas and Israel on October seventh was not an isolated affair. The the reason that that attack happened when it did was a timing with perfect a perfect timing with geopolitical events. A few weeks before October 7th, Netanyahu went to the United Nations, held up a picture, it said the new map right. of the Middle East, and it detailed how Israel and Saudi Arabia were coming together in a security alliance, despite the fact that Biden was trying to kill that alliance. Three mm -hmm. weeks later, Hamas launches this attack. And what's one of the first things that happened as a result? Israel had to retaliate. And the moment Israeli bombs and troops start you know, hitting uh, Palestinian Arabs in the Gaza Strip, the, the Arabs in Saudi Arabia are angry because they stand in solidarity with their co-religionists. And that puts the Saudi government, which is actually friendly to Israel and pro-American under Mohammed bin Salman's leadership, they have to kind of do this dance now where they want to help Israel, but they can't be seen as getting too close for fear of being overthrown. I and see. so that was a geopolitical win for Iran. And that is all the proof you need that Hamas is, in fact, one of the proxies of Iran and that Iran is the hidden culprit here. It's not happening in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating, and it sort of fits into the thesis of your book, is, which is that Iran has a quest for supremacy, and it's not limited just to Iran and the Middle East, is it? And part of it, uh, and correct me if this is wrong, but uh, we've seen in the United States, uh, you know, very heavy pro-Palestinian pro uh, protesting, particularly uh, even restricting access yeah. to, to Jewish neighborhoods. Uh, we've seen this in Great Britain. And in Canada, we've we've discovered recently that uh, some of the protesters uh, who have been out in full force in places like Toronto and Montreal and elsewhere are actually being paid. They're being paid by by foreign NGOs to to conduct these protests. Mm -hmm. And this is starting to become very serious and very violent. In fact, uh, recently in Edmonton, which is the capital city of our province of Alberta, we had an, a gunman who came in and and. Uh, uh, opened fire and uh, set off an explosive device in City Hall in Edmonton, uh, and he had he had a he had an agenda. He had a manifesto which was connected to uh, you know Palestine. So yeah. help us connect these dots. So we we you say in your book that Iran has a a quest for supremacy, mm -hmm. uh, world supremacy, which is what they're talking yeah. about, and what we're seeing now in the West them mm -hmm. them sort of branching out and causing. Right. Uh, you know, civil disturbance and instability yes. domestically and really spreading fear and anti-Semitism. So how are these things connected? So what we have found, and actually there's a guy, and I got to be careful because this was part of a closed meeting I was in a few nights ago, so I don't know how much of this I can share, but basically the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies has a kind of supposed um, uh, protest movements in mm -hmm. the West. And in the West, the media presents them as just, oh, college kids trying to go out and, you know, make their make their opposition to the quote unquote genocide Israel's perpetrating known. Well, it's much more than that. These are useful idiots 
And in many cases, they're actually paid professional protesters of the kind that we see comprising BLM and Antifa's ranks. Right. And yeah. their whole job is to go out and to harass policymakers, ordinary people, uh, to get them to pressure them to change national policies as it relates to Israel uh, and to to basically make Israel less safe. Um, mm-hmm. And that is all coming from through proxies. It's all coming, though, from Iran and also China. Um, and because Iran and China are, are working in tandem together right now. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have um, the the outburst, the outgrowth of anti-Semitism, particularly among young people, um, is being fueled, whether they realize it or not, and funded and coordinated by Iranian intelligence assets. Um, and so this is part of a coordinated strategy. This is part of sort of a fifth columnist strategy uh, to kind of shape perceptions in Western nations. And then underneath that, you have an even darker agenda. Um, right now, the United States, as I'm sure you know, uh, the United States has a massive border crisis on our southwestern border. And we know for a fact, I just talked to a former Border Patrol uh, agent, uh, we know for a fact that dozens in the last month, dozens of Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps members have been apprehended crossing the border illegally that there's Hezbollah elements crossing the border illegally and then disappearing into the United States. What are they doing here? Well, I think that they are lying in wait, planning for fifth columnist attacks on critical civilian infrastructure. In fact, I think they might actually be transporting uh, uranium with them that Iran has because of their nuclear program. And I think that they're going to start building dirty bombs in our cities. Uh, And they're lying in wait for when the inevitable clash, direct clash between Iran and the United States erupts, which I think is coming soon. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, that's sort of the fifth column element here. You've got the the perception shaping going on, perception management, and then you've got these covert kind of terrorists coming in. Uh, And meanwhile, our government and and I'm sure it's as bad also in Ottawa, but our government here is completely oblivious to it. And they're spending more time pressuring the Texas governor to stop enforcing the border mm-hmm. rather than just trying to you know, solidify our security on, on the border. And this is all connected to Iran's wider quest for supremacy. They want to first achieve regional dominance. You remember, they're a Shiite Persian power in a predominantly Sunni Arab region. Uh, this mm-hmm. goes back to the 7th century, the death of Muhammad, the Sunni-Shiite split, Shiite split, right? Uh, Muhammad dies. Who's going to succeed him? That's the big fight. The Sunnis say it should be a, it should be somebody appointed by a council of the wisest Muslims. The Shiites say no. Uh, Muhammad was a, 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 a prophet, and he has divine blood, and so it should be his his successor should be a, a member of the family, a bloodline, a blood relative. And that was sort of the famous break between Sunni and Shiite. They're more Sunni and there are Shiites. And so the Shiites have always been kind of an oppressed minority power in the region. And now today you add in the Jewish democracy, predominantly Jewish democracy of Israel. And now so Iran is now fighting two fronts against the so-called apostates in the Sunni Arab world and the the American-backed Israelis. And then there's a larger issue here where the the Islamists of Iran have labeled America as the great Satan because we are a Christian nation as well as a nation of unbelievers. We're sort of this weird mix. And so they want to basically use chaos, create as much chaos in the region so that our our allies like the Sunnis, uh, like, like the Saudis and Israel are weakened and push back, and the United States, therefore, is pushed over the horizon, giving Iran the window it needs to build its regional power and then expand from there, with China and Russia mm. backing them the whole time. Fascinating. Um, now, let's uh, branch out into what's happening 
over there in the Middle East. We know that uh, the United States has deployed uh, some of its uh, military resources there. Uh, they're present in the region. Mm-hmm. We've even heard about some, uh, you know, some, uh, let's call them attacks or, or some uh, flurries of military activity there, um, some flare-ups. What's actually happening over there? Because I can tell you in Canada, it's very, very difficult to get any yeah. news about w- what's actually happening happening in that region militarily. Do you have some insight in that regard? Yeah, so uh, what we're witnessing, uh, there are a handful of special forces bases that we kept in place in Iraq even after we pulled out, uh, as well as in Syria following the sort of semi-collapse of the Assad government. Basically, we're holding on to a region known as Deir Azor, which is in eastern Syria. It's got a lot of oil interests. And uh, U.S. Delta Force and special forces have been held up there since about 2016 or 17. Um, and so, but the problem is, is that these bases, they're kind of like forward operating bases. So they're very tiny. They're not, they don't, they don't have a lot of defense. We can't really, you know, continually support them because because they're sort of isolated and they're kind of on their own, which means the if there's a concerted effort by Iran and its allies to pressure those bases, attack them, there's a chance that we will get pushed out, which would be a huge coup for the Iranian regime, showing the great superpower losing these bases. Um, mm-hmm. Biden won't reinforce them. I don't even know if we should because they're very hard to defend. It would require us to escalate in such a way where we basically would be bogged down in another Middle East war. So what I've been saying for the last few years is to say, hey, we should reposition those guys out of those regions and then just tell the Iranians, if you guys start, you know, using those supply networks to link up with Hezbollah, we're just going to start bombing them in Iraq and Syria from the air. We don't really need a lot of guys on the ground for that. Um, But until that happens, Biden's kept those forces in these vulnerable positions. He won't really help defend them, yet he won't pull them out. So it's giving Iran, um, you know, a lot of, um, uh, you know, prestige by attacking us, showing us to be the apparent weaker horse, despite being a superpower. The Houthis Mm -hmm. are doing something similar. These missile attacks they're doing and these harassment of international shipping and the fact that the United States is sort of slow to respond only adds to the notion in the minds of many people in the region that America is a weak and incompetent power. And that is the worst combination of things to be seen as in that part of the world, because it makes everybody else think America has no staying power. And therefore, they should just kind of align with Iran, either directly or indirectly, because Iran is the new power. It's going to be their region anyway. And meanwhile, this is all sort of being propped up by international organizations as well. Now, uh, I want to tie that in with the ascendancy of Donald Trump. We, you talked a little bit about mm-hmm. him earlier, about uh, why he, he was a good president in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, maintaining stability uh, and maybe uh, preventing unrest, military unrest in the UN. Mm-hmm. Um, now, <laughs> bearing in mind what you say about the UN, what, how are things going to change if Donald Trump is restored to the White House, uh, you know, come January of, of 25. Yeah. Um, is he going to change the complexion of, of the, the UN and, and America's role in it uh, based upon what you said, that it's an American construct, which, with which I happen to agree? Uh, what, what's, your, what's your take on that? Well, the, the first thing I should let your audience know is I, I, I do not have anything to do with the campaign. I'm just a supporter now. Sure. I was actually very very critical of the former president over the last year with things that happened in his final mm-hmm. year in office, but I am supporting him. Um, and I do think he did a lot of things right. But when he was president, he could have really 
negated America's role in the UN and he chose not to do that. I don't think he would do that again. I was sort of just, uh, you know, spitballing my my opinion on that. Um, but um, I don't think he's going to pull us out of the UN. But I do think he's more skeptical, and I think he's got a healthy skepticism of these international organizations. I mean, we've mm -hmm. seen how the WHO, we've seen how the WTO, we've seen how the, you know, all these international organizations that were designed normally by Americans at the end of the Second World War to augment our power have been hijacked, notably by China, and have yeah. been actually weaponized against the United States and its allies. I mean, we see this most, most prevalent with the Israelis, where the UN is constantly going after Israel. Israel, which it shouldn't be because, okay, maybe Israel does human rights violations sometimes, but that's no more than what the Chinese do or mm. what the Iranians are doing. And yet the Iranians are, again, I think on their 10th time as the Human Rights Council president, uh, you know, they're serving yeah. as the head of the Human Rights Council at uh, the UN. So what I was getting at in that tweet really was that that we really need to, to really slow down our support for the UN um, because it, it doesn't help us anymore. It used to, in the Cold War, you could say, although there's still an argument to say that it wasn't, um, but now it has really become an anti-American construct that we're funding. Um, and so in my opinion, the, the upside of Trump, not necessarily he's going to pull us out, but I do think he's going to be a little bit more skeptical of the UN. Um, he's also, as we know, very skeptical of NATO. Um, and I think that that actually, we, we need to have that discussion because a lot of these these international organizations that China's using against us now um, were created to fight the Cold War. The Cold War's over, and whatever kind of conflict we're entering into now is going to be fundamentally different from what the Cold War was. And so we need mm -hmm. new constructs. Um, speaking of new construct, I, I really want to get your take on uh, the new Argentinian president's recent address mm -hmm. to the World Economic Forum. Uh, he was quoted um, as saying recently that socialism is a violent, murderous, and impoverishing phenomenon. And uh, in my research on you, that's opinion that I know that you share. You're no no fan particularly of Leninism. Um, but, you know, he gave this, this address recently at the World Economic Forum in which he essentially said to those people, look, you guys think that you are the solution. In fact, you're not. You are the root of the problem collectivism uh, leads to you know scarcity, poverty, human suffering, and ultimately to death. And he says, you know, the Ar Argentinian people, because of our history, we understand because we were a, one of the richest countries in the world, let's say 150 years ago, and now we went towards, we, we went down the wrong path. And he's saying, look, we're going back to freedom. Uh, we're getting back to basics. We're basically enunciating the principles that were in the American Declaration of Independence. He didn't say that. I'm saying that. Um, right. Do you see this as an important uh, shift uh, in terms of uh, of geopolitics that Argentina, that, that somebody would go to the World Economic Forum, yeah. the world leader, to basically right. tell them off? Right. Well, I thought it was interesting also that Kevin Roberts, the president of the Heritage yes. Foundation, did something similar as yes, well. He I did. was surprised yeah. that he was even brought in. And actually, you have Yuval Harari, who's a nutty globalist. <laughs> um, he's saying, uh, you know, he thinks I saw I tweeted this this morning. He thinks that uh, Donald Trump is going to win and that's basically going to be the end of globalism. And wow. so, um, you know, you, you now have, I think, globalists realizing that the consensus 
isn't actually there, that people are aware of what they're trying to do, and there's pushback. And it's now so prevalent that you have world leaders basically giving the bird to the WEF to their faces, going to the mm -hmm. WEF forum and basically telling them you're useless and we don't want you. The issue is um, Milai is, just as Bolsonaro was, is sort of the lone voice of reason in Latin America. And mm -hmm. my fear is that my fear is that there has been um, a coordinated campaign directed against populist right wing leaders. Um, you, you saw the 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 unfair removal of Bolsonaro from Brazil. You've mm -hmm. seen the collapse of the right wing government in Colombia. You've seen the rise or the resurgence of Marxism again in Latin America, except for in Argentina. You've mm -hmm. seen the assassination of Shinzo Abe in Japan, who most certainly would have been the prime minister again if he had lived. You see the pressure campaign mounted against Narendra Modi in uh, India. You see the lawfare being deployed against Netanyahu in uh, mm -hmm. Israel. You see also Boris Johnson and what happened with him and also what happened with Donald Trump in 2012, well, his entire presidency. Right. So you see, uh, you know, these these right wing leaders around the world being pushed out. And my concern with Milai is that he's the only guy down there and it will be easy for them to push him out because mm -hmm. we've seen already with Bolsonaro and the Colombian government that it was easy for for the forces of, of the left to use really undemocratic means to push out these leaders. So I hope that Milai can prove me wrong and i hope he keeps going because you know he's a breath of fresh air but he is a symbol that there is a real pushback among the people of the world to globalism and i think the globalists are realizing it and they're getting scared mm -hmm. uh the, the, I, I i totally agree with that and you talk about the the globalist uh agenda very much in your one of your other books called biohack china's race to control light yes and how the, the COVID-19 pandemic and the vaccines tie into that. Um, bearing in mind what you say in that book, and, and also uh, what you talk about in the Shadow War, um, do you think that a, a crisis like a full-blown military conflict can be averted? And that is, do you think globalism uh, as a concept, and it's, and it's, uh, it's obvious, uh, um, I guess, dominance that we've experienced over the past few years, uh, do you think that that can be changed uh, by, for example, regime changes in places like the United States or, or uh, God be praised, Canada? Um, do you think that that could have uh, the, the desired effect or do you think it's going to take some level of military conflict before we can resolve uh, this whole globalist uh, issue? Well, I, I also think the WEF in particular, contrary to what they think, has been co-opted by the Chinese government. Really? Um, I think that all I think all these globalist institutions, they don't even realize that they're useful idiots. Everybody thinks mm. that they're the evil villains. I actually think it's the other way around. I think they are being co-opted without them realizing it by the Chinese government to basically mm. use unconventional warfare to break apart Western resistance without ever China having to fire a shot. That's my pet theory. Um, mm. As it relates to Western governments shifting right, I do think that if Trump can get reelected, and that's a big if. If he can win again, um, I think that it blows, it does a serious blow to uh, the, the globalists. And I think that's why they're panicking. And I think that's why you're seeing all of these globalist allies in Western governments getting really crazy with sort of these uh, totalitarian moves because it's a use it or lose it mentality. Um, mm -hmm. And so I do think that um, the right kind of leaders getting elected uh, in these countries can really bust apart the globalist plans for dominion. Um, 
At the same time, I also think we are teetering on the brink of a major war. Um, the only upside to major wars is that sort of the fat is cut from governments. Think about the pre-war yeah. American government, its military leadership. Most of those guys, because of Pearl Harbor, were shanghaied out of power. And we got mm. guys like Ch Chester Nimitz and George Patton yeah. elevated, who really reinvigorated our military culture. And then ultimately our political culture was we got, we got great presidents. We got a handful of great presidents yeah. out of that sort of end of the war type, you know, everything was sort of shaken up. So I think that you have two forces at play here that could shake up our system greatly and, and have a long-term benefit. My hope is that the right-wing leadership can do enough change that we won't have a world war. Because I do think that if the left, uh, particularly if Biden remains in power, I think that we will be in a world war with his second term. I think that's where this is headed. I think Trump mm. can avert that. So you talk about a Biden second term, uh, and I realize you're not a, a, a political prognosticator, but um, do you expect that Joe Biden is going to be the Democrat nominee for the presidency? We're going to see a rematch of 2020 because there is talk of people like Gavin Newsom, who's sort of Justin Trudeau's uh, alter ego in the United States, <laughs> <laughs> two guys with the same personality, uh, you know. Uh, or, or we've even hearing about even you know Michelle Obama being the yeah. the the Democrat nominee. Do you so, think it's going to be Biden again? I think that probably, but I did write a column several uh, over last summer at 1945.com in which I was outlining how and why Michelle Obama would run. And I think that there is a very high degree of probability that she does run. And I think she put Gavin Newsom as her vice president. Um, so I think that. The So the problem is Michelle would really be the only way that the Democrats have a real shot in a fair election of winning um, mm. because she's she's not only a woman of color, but she's very popular with people. And yeah. Trump is a maniac when he debates. And the problem is when he does, he gives the Trump treatment to Michelle Obama, a recent popular, unlike Hillary Clinton, who's not popular, a recent popular first lady that actually could backfire on Trump giving her mm. the Trump treatment in a debate. And that actually might engender sympathy uh, for uh, Michelle Obama. So Michelle Obama is one of the ones that keeps me up at night, the thought of her campaign. Um, even though I think she's very thin-skinned, um, the problem is it would be the optics of, you know, Trump bullying a former first lady who's very popular. Um, mm. And, she, you know, she's got people around her, many of the same people with Biden and with her husband, um, that really scare me if they get more power. Well. That's uh, that, that's that thought scares me too. Uh, right. So um, I I know that you have to go. We're, we're grateful for your time, Brandon. But before we go, I want to just review our reading list of the two books of yours that we talked about today. One is called Shadow War: Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Uh, I, and I've read this book, folks. It's brilliant. I, I really enjoyed it. It Thank gave you. me a whole new insights into uh, some of the particulars that Brandon has talked about today on the show, and also his other book, Biohacked. Uh, China's Race to Control Life, which we talked about in more detail on a previous episode of our show. So I would invite you to go back and maybe review that one. But both of these books uh, are available for purchase, Amazon, anywhere you buy books. Um, I'm waiting, Brandon, for the audio versions. I'd love to hear you. I'd love well, to hear too. you. Me too. Yeah. yeah, we're trying to get the <laughs> publishers to do it, but there's a licensing thing and I, it's, yeah. it's a business thing. But yes, yeah. I am ready and willing to to get those out ASAP. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear you. I really enjoy uh, when, when authors uh, narrate their own books. Uh, it gives a, a whole new uh, a flavor, sort of appreciation to the author's work. Um, now, to, to, to close, sort of close off the show, 
Um, are there any other books of yours or, or other things that you've recently read that you'd recommend to the people watching this and listening to it? Uh, well, I'm working on my next book, which will be coming out in, around election time here in the United States. It's right now called The Disaster of Our Own Making, How NATO Expansion Doomed Ukraine. And so wow. because of that, I have gotten to read a lot of interesting research. There's one in particular, Orlando, and I never say his last name right, Fiji's, F-I-G-E-S, uh, mm -hmm. called The Story of Russia. It's a mm -hmm. very readable history, and it's just very wild, all of the, the complexities of Russia. Um, I've, I've also uh, read um, uh, Michael Caputo's book, uh, The Ukraine Hoax, uh, mm -hmm. which is all about sort of what Ukraine did to Trump in the 2016 election and supporting Hillary Clinton. Um, and, um, you know, those are sort of the two books I would recommend to your audience right now, uh, because I've kind of been in Russia, Ukraine world for the last year researching this book. And those are two of the most readable, interesting books. And I know, I know Michael Caputo as well. He's a, he's a friend. So I, I, uh, I, I, I'm a big fan of his, he's got some really interesting insights. Yeah. Well, Speaking as a Canadian whose uh, you know, country has donated ten billion dollars to yeah. the, the what to, to the failing you know, Ukrainian state there, uh, I'm I'd be very interested to read your new book. I'm looking forward to it. When I'll when do you, you expect you're gonna when when do you expect to release that? Uh, well, the the editing process begins February 12th, and then they're trying to have it out by October November of this year for the election. Oh, so, wonderful. but I can get you an early copy once it's all finalized. Oh, I'd be so and grateful. Kurt, and Kurt that. Mills of the American spec of the American uh, Conservative is uh, going to be writing the foreword, and um, Sumatra Mitra uh, and some really great foreign policy thinkers on the new right are giving me blurbs. So it's it's got the endorsement of a lot of really cool people. Wonderful. So. Well, thank you so much for being our guest thank again. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, Brandon, really enjoy listening to you and uh, your keen insights into well, same here. geopolitical affairs. And uh, uh, please keep writing. We enjoy your books very much. And uh, all, all the best to you and your, and, your, and your family. God bless you. Thanks, Brandon. Thank you. I hey, look forward thanks. to seeing it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.